Well, we're back. Another week of this week in government enforcement. Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by Tom Firestone. Um, Tom, before we get into the substance of today's uh, show, I want to take a quick moment to say that it's, it's a big day in, uh, well, really the Bitcoin, but also the crypto world, as we've been talking about this for a while. Um, today is the launch of the first crypto-backed exchange-traded fund. Um, a huge deal um, to crypto folks. Again, I've got a very small portfolio and do it mostly to keep up with the times, but um, it is the first exchange-traded fund that is derivative of um, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Now, the key is it's based on the futures of Bitcoin and not necessarily the underlying Bitcoin as well. And those futures trade on the CME, which is a highly regulated exchange. And many folks are thinking that's why the SEC didn't object to the filing of the ETF perspective. But again, super interesting as we can see this march sort of going along, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, give, you know, Gensler is viewed as a very pro crypto. So I think this is one sign that we're going to see more developments in the crypto world in the SEC, but potentially even blessing some of these products moving forward. Um, but that's my uh, that's my little wonkish update. Now let's get into the substance. So Tom's going to talk about uh, uh, stuff we've been hearing about in the news the past week or so. Um, Steve Bannon and issues related to being held in contempt um, uh, of Congress. It was all over the the Sunday morning news talk shows yesterday. That's about, about all I heard on um, this week with George Stephanopoulos as well as others. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a speech about a week and a half ago by SEC Enforcement Director um, Gurbir Gurwell on some enforcement priorities and some of the themes that SEC enforcement um, is going to have uh, over the next three or, year, three or so years uh, based on his tenure. So I guess, Tom, why don't you kick us off and then I'll bring us back home talking about the SEC. Great. Thanks a lot, Jerome. So you're right. I do want to talk about the whole issue with Steve Bannon, um, who it looks like Congress is going to move to holding contempt and is going to make a, a referral to the Department of Justice in a criminal prosecution of him for um, criminal contempt of Congress. Just a little bit of background here. As we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, the House Select Committee that has been appointed to investigate January 6th serves subpoenas on four Trump advisors, Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, Kesh Patel, and Dan Scavino. Um, all four were scheduled to testify at the end of last week. None of them showed up. According to the committee, Meadows, Patel, and Scavino are engaged in discussions, negotiations about their appearance in response to the subpoena. Bannon, however, through his lawyer, wrote a letter to the committee basically saying that Trump had instructed him not to respond because Trump plans to assert privilege. And so he said, I'm not going to comply with the subpoena. However, you know, and your committee has to work this out with, uh, with Mr. Trump. We may revise our position if uh, President Trump's position changes or if the court rules on the matter. The committee did not take very well to this and uh, said last week that it was going to make a criminal referral to DOJ. Uh, President Biden said that he hoped that DOJ would prosecute Bannon for uh, contempt. DOJ came out with a statement saying, well, not so fast. Um, their official statement was, the Department of Justice will make its own independent decisions in all prosecutions based solely on the facts and the law, period, full stop. The period, full stop, is part of the quote from the DOJ spokesperson on this. 
So I just wanted to provide a little context and try to predict um, where this may be going. Just to back, you know, um, step back for a second, the question is that what can Congress do if somebody does not comply with the subpoena that they serve? Congress is obviously not the Department of Justice. It's not a grand jury. It doesn't have the same kinds of powers that a grand jury has, but it does have some powers to try to compel testimony from recalcitrant witnesses. There are basically three powers that Congress has in this situation. The first is what's referred to as its, quote, inherent contempt power. Now, if you look for Congress's inherent contempt power in any statute, you will not. That's because it's not contained in a statute. It is a, according to the Supreme Court, it is a power of Congress that is implicit in Congress's power to carry out its legislative function. Um, according to the Supreme Court, they've characterized as an essential and appropriate auxiliary to the legislative action, uh, function, thus implied from the general vesting of legislative powers in Congress. Um, according to the Supreme Court, this uh, the power to legislate includes, quote, an implied right of Congress to preserve itself by dealing with direct obstructions to its legit legislative duties through contempt. Now, what does this mean? So Congress could hold somebody in contempt, and then the mechanism to enforce this is to literally have the sergeant at arms arrest the witness, the reluctant witness, and hold them in uh, detention until they purge their contempt, i.e. come forward and testify. This, as you can imagine, is very, very rarely used. It was more commonly used at the beginning of the 19th century because before we had the other two statutes that I'll talk about. I think the last time it was used was in the inherent, it was in the early part of the 20th century. This is the least likely thing for Congress to do because it seems antiquated, dramatic. It's basically Congress using, uh, you know, sergeant at arms to arrest somebody who is a witness. It's just not something, you know, a path that they want to go down. However, if the other two paths don't work, they may be forced to do so, and that's what some are calling for now. The second option they have would be to file a civil lawsuit. Um, this is, there's a statute, 28 U.S.C. 1365, which provides that the district court for the U.S. District of Columbia has jurisdiction over any civil action brought by the Senate or committee or subcommittee of the Senate to enforce any subpoena. Now, that refers specifically to the Senate, not the House of Representatives, but practice and some judicial precedent suggests that the House has the same right. So they could go to they could go to court, they could file a lawsuit against the recalcitrant witness and seek an order from the court requiring the witness to appear. Um, the, if the witness still failed to appear in violation of this court order, then um, the witness could be held um, in detention until they comply with the court order. The same as would happen if somebody failed to appear for a grand jury subpoena. Um, this has been tried a couple of times recently, never particularly successful. Um, the witnesses, Don McGahn among them, have basically been able to drag out proceedings over in civil litigation through the courts. And so I think there's reluctance to go down that path. What they are planning to do apparently um, with, re with respect to Mr. Bannon is to pursue a criminal case against him. And the last week of the, when Bannon's, after Bannon's lawyer sent the letter saying that he was not going to appear, the chair of the committee that is investigating January 6th, Benny Thompson issued a statement that said, quote, Mr. Bannon has declined to cooperate with the select committee and is instead hiding behind the former president's 
insufficient blanket and vague statements regarding privileges he has purported to invoke. We reject this position entirely. The select committee will not tolerate defiance of our subpoena. So we must move forward with proceedings to refer Mr. Bannon for criminal contempt. We are taping today, Monday, October 18th. There is a vote scheduled on this tomorrow, Tuesday, October 19th. The way this works, the process is that the House committee would um, the House committee would um, uh, take a vote. They would then send a recommendation for there would then be a vote of the House more generally. Then there would be a recommendation to uh, to Speaker Pelosi, who would then uh, make a referral to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, seeking a criminal prosecution under the statute 2 U.S.C. 192 which provides that any person who willfully, and willfully is an important word here, fails to comply with a properly issued committee subpoena for testimony or documents is guilty of a misdemeanor, punishable by a substantial fine and imprisonment for up to one year. So that's what they are apparently going to do. And there is um, great support um, apparently within Congress, a uh, number of representatives spoken out in support of this plan and a desire to see Bannon brought to criminal justice for his um, defiance refusal to comply with the uh, subpoena. It's not gonna be so hard for them, so easy for them to do this though. I think when you look at the statute, as I said, the statute contains the word willfully. What does willfully mean? According to the DOJ manual, an act is done willfully if done voluntarily and intentionally, and here's the key part, and with the specific intent to do something the law forbids. Now that's gonna be a hard case to make with Bannon because he has had his lawyer send this letter. He's not saying, I'm not gonna show up. He's had his lawyer send the letter. The lawyer has cited all sorts of precedent about privilege. And the lawyer has said, we may revisit this position if a court decides otherwise. So what they're saying is we've got a good faith basis for not complying and you know, you can litigate it if you don't like it. It's going to be very hard to make out willfulness on those facts the way they've drafted. And now they, we might say this is a bad faith invocation. The cases that they cite don't really support that position. But, you know, it's going to, again, it's, I think it's going to be very hard to meet this high um, standard of willfulness under these circumstances. And it's not clear what the U.S. attorney will do with Pelosi's request for a criminal prosecution. The statute says that the U.S. used the word shall, that the U.S. attorney shall um, uh, pursue the matter. However, there has traditionally been a lot of discretion with the U.S. attorney as to how to respond to such requests for Congress. And just to give you a couple of precedents here, um, in 2019, the House Oversight and Reform Committee subpoenaed then Attorney General Barr, then Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, um, for testimony in connection with their plans to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, which was then under investigation in Congress. They refused to comply. The Justice Department said they did not commit a crime. The information that is being sought is privileged. Therefore, we're not going to pursue this, uh, this referral. Not a big surprise, given these were members of a Republican administration, the Republican Justice Department. In 2015, there was a similar situation. Um, Lois Lerner, an IRS official, who had supervised the unit of the IRS that allegedly you know, subjected conservative nonprofit organizations to special scrutiny, was also subpoenaed by a congressional committee. Um, she refused to testify. She asserted the fifth. 
Congressman Darrell Issa claimed that she had waived the fifth by making a statement to Congress. The case was sent, Congress made a uh, referral to the Department of Justice. The US Attorney's Office for the uh, District of Columbia refused to prosecute her on the grounds that she had a valid Fifth Amendment right that she had not, um, that she had not waived. One, to find an actual prosecution, one has to go all the way back to the early 1980s in the Reagan administration. Um, for those of us who are old to remember, there was an investigation of the Reagan administration, EPA, for corruption in connection with a Superfund cleanup, and there were allegations that money was for this. The committee investigating this subpoenaed, um, among others, two EPA officials. The first was Anne Gorsuch Burford, the mother of our Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was the EPA administrator at the time. She refused to turn over documents, again, citing executive privilege. The House voted to hold her in contempt. Um, a, refer a referral was sent to the uh, Department of Justice. The Department of Justice once again exercised its discretion, refused to pursue a criminal prosecution of her on the grounds that she was obeying a presidential order. The other EPA official who was uh, subpoenaed and refused to comply was a woman named Rita Lavelle. Um, she refused to show up to testify in response to a subpoena, did not make any kind of privilege claim. The House voted 430 to hold her in contempt. 158 Republicans joined the Democrats in that vote. It shows you how much times have changed in Washington in the House of Representatives. It was a unanimous, uh, it was a unanimous vote. They made a referral to the Department of Justice. The Reagan administration Department of Justice agreed to prosecute for contempt its own official, Miss Lavelle, who was at the DEA. So she was charged with contempt for failing to, uh, for failing to comply with this congressional um, subpoena. The case went to trial. Her defense at trial was literally, I'm not making this up, when I asked when she testified and said why she had not shown up to testify, she said, quote, I just couldn't make it. Um, that was her, was her defense, not privilege, not anything else. I just couldn't make it. She then apparently elaborated, said she had a sore throat. She said that her sore throat made her think that maybe she had throat cancer. She didn't know, but this was, you know, the I just couldn't make it defense. The result of the case at trial after she asserted the I just couldn't make it defense was, what do you think, Jerome? She was acquitted. By Acqu no, no. She was acquitted by the jury, which shows just how difficult it is to yes. get these criminal contempt cases. Now, justice was eventually done. She was subsequently prosecuted for perjury and obstruction of justice in connection with the same investigation spent some time in jail. And then I discovered that in 2005, 20 years after these original events, she was prosecuted yet again for an unrelated fraud. So uh, Ms. Lavelle did not escape justice completely, but she was acquitted with the, I just couldn't make it defense. Yeah. The congressional lawyer, the legendary Washington lawyer, Stanley Brand, who was then a um, counsel to the investigating committee in the house, said, quote, if Congress has no way of enforcing its subpoenas, we may have to go back to the old way of dealing with contempt, arrest them with our own sergeant and try them in the well of the house. So that may be where we wind up if the, uh, if the Justice Department looks at the willfulness standard, decides that Bannon's carefully worded letter from his lawyer 
um, is uh, insufficient to, for, to allow them to meet the willfulness standard. The clients to prosecute we may be right back at the um, old way of doing things. So this is definitely one to watch. Interesting. So a couple things. One, uh, the, the the Sunday morning talk shows I was watching yesterday made it sound like Congress had no authority to enforce contempt. But Congress what has authority to enforce that, contempt. It, the Supreme Court has held that on multiple occasions, and they have done so not for a long time, but they do have their own power to do it. And it's interesting. OK, well, that's I, this is what we might have to do. No. Well, absolutely. I mean, I learned something because I was going as that being the gospel that 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 because what the, the, the option was, they, they said, you know, Congress has this contempt procedure, but it's really powerless to enforce it. So what we're looking at here is a referral to the Department of Justice. Again, what you described, um, but but maybe they were using that that precedent from the Superfund EPA incident back in the early 80s as, as the, the applicable president. Who knows? I think they were just saying it's practically not possible. It's theoretically yeah. possible, but it hasn't been done in a long time. And it's sort of a bizarre spectacle to think of the sergeant at arms arresting Steve Bannon or some other government official. But it is theoretically possible and it has been done in the past, not for a long time, not frequently, but it has been done. Well, you, you know, you know who else used the I just couldn't make it defense, Tom, don't you? No. <laughs> Jeff Spicoli. <laughs> With Mr. Comes back to your favorite movie. <laughs> I just couldn't make it, Mr. Hand. That was his defense. <laughs> Again, in the early 80s, it seems the I just couldn't make it defense was was pretty popular amongst people. Uh, um, apparently so. And we'll have to see if it, uh, at least Bannon's more sophisticated in uh, his explanation for why. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we'll have to see how this plays out. Again, I think that their strategy is to drag this out, litigate it, hope that the, the Republicans gain control of the House again in 2022 which will moot all of these investigations, but which is part of the reason the investigating committee is moving so quickly with the criminal prosecution, seeking criminal prosecution of Bannon to put the fear of God into other witnesses and make them see that this is a real possibility. That strategy only works if DOJ actually prosecutes Bannon successfully. Again, I think that, you know, it's a, they have an uphill battle on the willfulness stand, uh, standard. Yep. yep. All right, thanks. So I'm going to talk a bit about SEC enforcement priorities. So last week I went to my first SEC enforcement alumni event in probably close to two years. And earlier in the day, I was also at a networking lunch. And the same questions kept coming up, which is where is enforcement going? Where is Director Gray Wall going to take enforcement? And I had an opportunity to talk to some folks um, on that day about this speech on October 6th, 2021, but I want to also make sure I talk about it on here. So real quickly, so at the uh, PLI broker-dealer uh, regulation enforcement seminar on October 6th, SEC Enforcement Director um, Grabeer Graywall foreshadowed in a speech how he believes the division of enforcement will tackle issues such as cooperation and decisions during enforcement cases and sanctions. And so he set out a number of themes. He said there were three themes, but when I went through the speech, I picked up more than three, but I'll just sort of go through them. The, the, the first theme he talked about was uh, that, that, that companies and individuals should not step up to the, quote, compliance line. 
He said that in May 2021, a speech by uh, SEC Chair uh, Gary Gensler, um, which he said, this is Chair Gensler, quote, if you're asking a lawyer, accountant, or advisor if something is over the line, maybe it's time to step back from the line. Remember that going right up to the edge of a rule or searching for some ambiguity in the text or a footnote may not be consistent with the law and its purpose, end quote. Now, again, this is what lawyers do for a living. We, 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 we search for what does the rule actually cover, and oftentimes, as in financial statements, as in the law, the devil is in the details, as in the footnotes. Um, so, you know, whether and to what extent that quote actually um, bears fruition in light of the reality, which is that's what lawyers and accountants do, is analyze and interpret fine points of law that are often um, more complicated than the sort of obvious plain text of the statute itself. Uh, but, you know, putting that to one side, Director Grewal stressed the importance of it. He said, look, um, what I'm saying here is that if regulators are particularly focused on issues X or Y, use those terms, in any given area, um, that doesn't mean that your, your clients can push the envelope on issue Z or the gray areas around X or Y. He said, quote, that approach is a surefire way to foster misconduct and potentially lead to enforcement action. He said, instead, what companies and firms need to be doing is thinking rigorously about how their specific business models and products interact with emerging risks and the SEC's enforcement priorities, and then go to the, their, their line employees, whether it's you know registered representatives in the broker-dealer space, or whether it's investment professionals, investment advisors, or employees, sales employees, finance employees in, in, in companies, and tailor their compliance practices, policies, and training accordingly. He said that rapid and profound technological change creates new avenues for misconduct and also new responsibilities for compliance. So again, there's a ton to think about in just that one issue, but he went on. Look, Tom, I'm telling you, this speech, there's enough to keep someone busy for months on end picking this thing apart. Because he also said the need, there's a need for record keeping to keep track with technology. He said, look, record keeping violations, they might not grab the headlines of the, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, but the underlying obligations are essential to market integrity enforcement. Um, he then went on to say, um, you know, look, you know, we continue to see in multiple investigations, instances where one party or one firm, um, where its employees use off-channel communications, whether that's texting or messaging apps, um, where one firm had preserved and produced them and the other firm did not. He said these failures delay and obstruct investigations and raise, quote, broader accountability, integrity, and spoliation issues. He then went on to say, um, and I think this is the quote of, uh, of the speech, and it's one that I think is quite poignant. He said, listen, many of these are not new technological advances. After all, my 75-year-old mother has been texting my 13-year-old daughter for years, and I'm certain many in this room have sent or received professional communications on personal devices or unofficial communication channels. You need to be actively thinking about and addressing the many compliance issues raised by the increased use of personal devices, new communications, and other technological developments like ephemeral apps. And he says, you need to do this outside of an enforcement investigation. The time to think about this isn't when an enforcement investigation arises, it's in advance of that. That's how you're going to get the cooperation credit, which we'll get into later. 
Um, he then talked about uh, the, this concept of proactive enforcement, um, where he said, like, look, no, as a county prosecutor and attorney general, one thing I know is that if you post a 65 mile an hour uh, speed limit and don't enforce it, people will drive 75. And you drive faster, eventually have situations where accidents increase and heightened enforcement follows. But for the victims, it's all too late. He then pointed out to a couple of SEC cases, one in particular in the SPAC uh, enforcement uh, context, where the SEC brought a case before the SPAC was actually finalized, before the merger had actually been consummated. And he said, look, what we did is we protected SPAC investors um, from potential harm based on misleading statements about the target business, the operating business's continued viability. It's, it's proactive, it's moving quickly. Um, then he said, what is real cooperation? That's the fourth theme I picked up. Um, he said, look, I, I, he, in fact, he took issue with complaints that he gets that the SEC is not sufficiently clear regarding its views on cooperation. He said a couple things, four things by my, by my count. One, cooperation is not the mere absence of obstruction. We do not recommend that parties receive credit for simply living up to their legal and regulatory obligations. Second, cooperation, or at least cooperation that the SEC provides cooperation credit for, means more than simply responding to lawful subpoenas. It, it means more than making witnesses available for lawfully compelled testimony. He says, defense counsel who advise that credit may be on the table for taking these standard steps is doing their client a disservice. The third point he raised, which is cooperation means more than self-reporting to the SEC when it's about to be publicly announced through charges by another regulator or an article in the news media. And then he said, finally, cooperation means something more than conducting a purportedly independent investigation, presenting it to the SEC, but not fairly presenting the facts and instead doing it in a more, uh, 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 it is slanted or presenting more as an advocacy piece. So really what he's saying is you, know, you, you compliance with a subpoena and coming in and advocating on behalf of a client without presenting the full scope of the underlying facts of an investigation, that is not going to receive cooperation credit. Or if it does receive cooperation credit, you're likely to see you receive far less than you would otherwise had you offered real cooperation. And then he said, so what is real cooperation? He said, it's quote, no secret. And he pointed to the Seaboard report, which he said is 20, year old, 20 years old this month, and it can to end, as well as the SEC's policy statement concerning cooperation by individuals, which was issued in 2010, and the enforcement manual, which includes pages of discussion concerning the analytical framework works for co cooperation. He said, you know, for example, in practice, cooperation can take the form of a company during the global pandemic collecting, synthesizing, translating where necessary, and presenting significant volumes of relevant information to the SEC. Also making multiple current and former employees available for interviews by the SEC, providing presentations and narrative submissions that highlighted critical facts. He then said, cooperation is judged when it, quote, substantially advances the quality and efficiency of the staff's investigation, and third, conserves the staff's resources. So where you have quality, where you substantially advance the SEC's investigation, both from a quality standpoint and an efficiency and allow them to conserve resources, that's when you're going to be in the ballpark for real and meaningful cooperation. Um, one more thing that he also said is, if you think you deserve credit and the SEC staff disagrees, 
I encourage you to take a long, a hard, objective look at your conduct during the investigation before trying to convince me that the staff is wrong. I was a former federal prosecutor, local prosecutor, and a state attorney general. Quote, I firmly believe that the frontline staff are best positioned to assess cooperation with the investigations they conduct. So what he's saying is, if you want to appeal cooperation credit, you better think about it. You better have a long, hard record on what that cooperation credit is based on. And you better be able to address every grievance that the staff has as to why cooperation credit is not appropriate. Um, then, he, then he closed out by talking about penalties. He said, look, um, penalties are among the most important of the SEC's tools because we can tailor them to the violation. Um, Congress, by granting the SEC civil penalty authority, uh, uh, allowed uh, uh, the commission to impose remedies that were substantially more punitive than a censure, but less draconian than revoking a firm's registration or suspending its operations. He said um, the, the SEC's ability and decision to impose penalties um, is based on one single question. Will the penalty appropriately deter future misconduct? Proportionality is key here, he said. The worse the conduct, the more strongly that the SEC is going to want to disincentivize folks in the market from doing that. He says corporate penalties should be tied to the egregiousness of the actual misconduct. But then he said, hold on, uh, he does not believe that roughly equivalent misconduct by comparable offenders should be penalized in the same amount the hundredth time compared to when it occurs first. He said to achieve the intended deterrent effect, it may be appropriate to impose more significant penalties for comparable behavior over time. Again, Tom, this is kind of what we've seen in the FCPA world, right? As the penalties have gone up, people have talked about why that is. Um, you, you know, call me crazy, but but he seems to be sort of relating, at least from the SEC's view, why that would be appropriate. Because at some point, you see what the publicly filed cases say, you see what the illegal, illegal conduct is, you see what the penalties are, if there's subsequent conduct down the road, even by another company related to uh, an act related to you know, uh, comparable conduct that was penalized before, you can't say you were caught by a surprise. And if you keep on doing that conduct, even after you knew what the penalty was to that other company, we're going to view that penalty as not being sufficiently deterrent um, uh, to prevent future conduct. So we're gonna impose greater penalties. Um, so again, there's a lot in there. Um, and I tried to cram this all into 15 minutes on this podcast, and it's virtually impossible. I've got a ton more bullet points on my on my notes here, but I tried to I tried to hit um, uh, I tried to hit the big points. What he's saying makes perfect sense. It sounds like it's very logical a synthesis of enforcement positions that have evolved over the years. When you're talking about the cooperation criteria, I couldn't help but remember. When I was a junior AUSA, my, one of my first cases when I was a young federal prosecutor, I remember we had a guy who was arrested on a gun charge, and I and the agent were meeting with him and the lawyer, and they asked about cooperation. If he tells you who gave him the gun, you know, I, the lawyer said, if I, I told him if he tells you who gave him the gun, you'll let him, you'll let him go. Isn't that right, Mr. Firestone? I remember, and I, gave, 
I said, well, that's not really the way it works. And I gave the perfect DOJ, you know, law school speech about 5K letter and substantial assistance. And we write a letter to the judge, the judge makes the decision. And the guy, the defendant looked at me like it was crazy. I had no idea what I was talking about. And then I remember the ATF agent leaned over and she said, what he's trying to say is it's got to be real cooperation, not just one scumbag in Brooklyn with a gun. And then the guy said, okay, I get that. <laughs> that seems to me basically what uh, Gerbir Gerwal is saying, it's got to be real cooperation. Um, and that is, and what real cooperation is, depends on the realities of the situation, the facts of every situation. You've got to save them substantial resources. You've got to give them stuff they wouldn't have otherwise. You've got to give them something that they can use to make other cases with. That's real cooperation, not just complying with the subpoena. Um, and if you're going to appeal this, look very carefully because you're just going to piss me off if you come to me with an unjustified appeal saying that my guys, you know, or women, you know, denied yep. you cooperation credit when you really shouldn't have gotten it. So think hard before you do this. That sounds to me like a very seasoned lawyer, somebody who's seen the process from the company side and the prosecutorial side, summarizing what this is really all about. Yeah, absolutely. And look, when I was reading this, I, I my, my immediate reaction was, you know, while it doesn't harken exactly back to the broken windows policy of Mary Jo White's SEC and when Rob Kazami ran the enforcement division, there, there, there's more than a little bit of that, the, that enforcement uh, regime, if you will, back under the Obama administration in this speech. So I'm not saying we're going back to the Mary Jo White broken windows policy days, but it certainly seems like we're moving closer back to what the enforcement mindset was, at least back in the Obama years under the Kazami, Mary Jo White SEC regime, which I don't think is going to come as a surprise to any of us. But, you know, having sort of done this for enough administrations and SEC, you can see, you know, common themes popping their head back up, you know, administration after administration. Exactly right. And again, to be expected, and we're now seeing these are the things that you talked about after the election, what we were likely to see at the SEC, and now we're seeing it played out in very specific situations regarding yeah. specific legal issues like cooperation and penalties. All right, Tom, well done. We'll talk to you guys next week. Um, keep the comments coming, keep the questions. We love getting them. Uh, until next week, Mr. Firestone, I will talk to you later. All right. Thanks.